Hey, church family. Now, I so wish that I was with you in person today, but I'm very grateful that we have this opportunity to connect and to study God's Word and to continue growing together, um, even online. How about that? Pretty cool, huh? Hey, so we're in this series about taking new ground, and, and we're, we're looking at the first chapters in the book of Joshua because it was there that God's people were called to take new ground, to advance right into their promised land, even though there was huge obstacles and an enemy out there waiting to take them out. But right then, God calls them to advance, to take new ground. And so we're discovering from God's word how we can take new ground, even, even in these very difficult and trying days um, that we're in the middle of. So you're ready to go? Uh, we're picking up in Joshua chapter 4 today. But as a reminder about where we were in Joshua chapter 3, it was there that God had miraculously dammed up the Jordan River completely stopping its flow for over 20 miles so that the Israelites could cross over into the promised land. And it even says that they didn't even cross on muddy ground, but they crossed on dry ground. I mean, this was just this epic, amazing miracle that God did to uh, open up a pathway for his people. And it was similar, a similar miracle to what God had done 40 years earlier when God had opened up a path for his people to cross through the Red Sea. But now he did it again for a new generation. The first time he did it was to make a pathway of escape. But here God is doing it to open up a pathway of entry right into the promised land. So God had instructed Joshua to have priests carry the Ark of the Covenant right into the Jordan River and just stand there in the water. And God promised that when they did that, that he would stop the flow of water so that the people could cross. And that's exactly what happened. And now in Joshua chapter 4, we're going to discover what the very first thing that God had his people do as soon as they entered the new promised land. As soon as they took new ground, what did God have them do? So let's pick up in Joshua chapter 4, starting in verse 1. When all the people had crossed the Jordan, the Lord said to Joshua, Now choose twelve men, one from each tribe. Tell them, Take 12 stones from the very place where the priests are standing in the middle of the Jordan. Carry them out and pile them up at the place where you will camp tonight. And then picking up in verse 6, Joshua is now uh, communicating this to, to the guys. And he says, we're going to use these stones to build a memorial. In the future, your children will ask you, what do these stones mean? Then you can tell them, they remind us that the Jordan River stopped flowing when the Ark of the Lord's Covenant went across. These stones will stand as a memorial among the people of Israel forever. So the men did as Joshua had commanded them. So the very first thing that God has his people do after 40 years of waiting and they finally get into the promised land, the very first thing that God has them do is to build something, to build a memorial. Now, I want you to think about this. 
When God asked them to build this memorial, the miracle wasn't even done yet. It was still going on. The people had crossed over. The priests are like standing there in the riverbed, dry, you know, but they're st standing there with these poles and they're holding the Ark of the Covenant. They're likely exhausted at this point, saying, okay, uh, you know, Joshua, hey, are we done yet? Can, can we now get uh, into the promised land? And Joshua's like, nope, nope, hold on. Couple of things we're going to do before you can step into the promised land as well. And so Joshua, in obedience to what God told him, he sends men to pick up these large stones from the dry riverbed right where the priests were standing, right where God was still at work. From the middle of this miracle, they carry these rocks up to where the people are now camping out up in the promised land. So before we ask why God would prioritize the building of a memorial, I want to reflect on a couple of things that were going on right here in these verses that I think are pretty remarkable. First, I think it's a beautiful thing that God tells Joshua not just to send 12 men in to complete this task and to pick up these stones, but he said to, to choose one from each tribe. Now, I want you to remember that the tribes were basically just very large extended families. I think maybe uh, similar to what we experience here in Santa Maria. I mean, sometimes I think that all of Santa Maria is just made up of four giant families, right? And you, you never want to talk bad about somebody because if you do, it's like, yo, dude, that is my third cousin on my mom's side and I've never met her, but man, you better not talk bad about her, right? I mean, that's like what life is here like in Santa Maria. And, and, and so they have these, these 12 tribes and God said, for this task, this special task, I want you to choose one man from each tribe. And I think that's really remarkable because God didn't have to do it that way. I mean, there, was, there were times when, when God just had one tribe, um, you know, carry out an assignment. But on this one, he said, I want somebody from every single tribe to be involved in this miracle. Okay, so... When the guy like from the tribe of Judah was selected, like all of those people from Judah are like, man, there, there goes, you know, whoever, Jeremiah, you know, from Judah. Man, that's our guy. We know him. He's part of our family. And so every family got to be involved in participating in building this memorial. And it was, this was God, the way God wanted it, that every family would be involved. So... These men were told, though, not to just go pick stones from anywhere in this dry riverbed. They were told, take 12 stones from the very place where the priests are standing in the middle of the Jordan. So you might remember last week uh, that when they crossed over the Jordan, that they were told that everyone had to stay like at least a half mile away from the priests carrying the ark. So... And when we talk about the Ark of the Covenant, yes, it is the Ark, like the Raiders of the Lost Ark. I mean, this was this remarkable thing that had been built. It was the very most holy element in all of the things that had been built uh, for God's tabernacle. And it, and it represented the visible presence of God. I mean, it was so holy, the Ark of the Covenant, 
that God said that if anybody touches it, that they would die. Like not being killed by human hands, but that God would, in his holiness, just zap them. I mean, they were dead. And that actually happens later in scripture. So no one touched the ark. In fact, the priests carried it on these long poles that were fitted through these rings on the side of the ark because it was so holy, no one could touch it. No one who was, wasn't a priest ever even got near to the ark. But now, a representative from every family was being invited by God, come near, come right to the very spot where my presence is and where I'm at work. I think that is just remarkable. They were told to go there and to pick up a stone. Isn't it amazing that God wanted every family to draw close to him and get their hands involved in what he was doing? Friends, I think that's still God's heart today. He invites everyone, every family, to draw close to him and get involved. Hey, it's time to get our hands dirty with what God is up to. And don't go for the little rock, right? Because people are watching. The rest of the family is watching. Go big. Not just, don't pick up the one that's easiest to carry. Man, get something that's going to be remarkable to help build a memorial of what God is doing. The second thing that I want you to check out is in verse 9. And we haven't read it yet, but it's it describes something that Joshua does right when all this other activity is going on. So in verse 9, it says, Joshua also set up another pile of 12 stones in the middle of the Jordan, at the place where the priests who carried the Ark of the Covenant were standing. And they are there to this day. So Joshua follows these 12 guys out, and while they're busy picking up rocks and you know hefting them out of this dry riverbed, he is down there building his own second memorial, right there where God was at work. And this was not something that God had told him to do. Now, God had specifically given instruction for the first memorial to be built and exactly even how it was to be uh, constructed by these 12 guys carrying these stones. But this was something completely of Joshua's own imagination. This was the expression of one man's passionate desire to never forget what God did right here in this space. And what does God think about what Joshua did? Well, in a little bit, we're going to come back to that and, and hear what God uh, thought of Joshua. So notice there was two memorials. One was very public, built by 12 guys that was for everyone to see. And there was a second memorial. It was very private. It was built by one man. And, and as soon as God released that water, just probably moments later, the, that memorial was covered with water and never to be seen again, except Joshua knew that it, would, it was still standing underneath the water right where God worked. And I believe that both of these memorials fit the definition of what a spiritual memorial is to be. A spiritual memorial is a silent witness 
pointing to what God has done. It serves as a physical reminder to tell the story again and again and again. And when you're taking new ground, I think God wants us to remember that it's very important that we build memorials along the way. So why are memorials so important in our lives as we're following after Christ? And number one, I believe that memorials are very important because not everyone could see what was happening. I'm just like in this very story, you know, as, as Gary talked about last week, there was over 20 miles of dry riverbed um, because there was like 2 million people that had to get across. So they didn't all just cross within like kind of 100 yard span. It would have taken forever. And plus they had all their flocks with them. So there was like 20 miles plus of dry riverbed that they were crossing to get into the promised land. So very, very few people would have actually seen what God was doing at that moment. I mean, you know, and then, then there was like even the half mile buffer on either side of these priests. So very, very few people actually got a glimpse of the work that God was doing at that moment. Uh, you know, this, this miraculous, amazing moment. Very few people actually got to see it. And so God wanted them to have a tangible reminder of what he did. Something that would trigger the retelling of the story of what God had done for them. And it's the same in our lives. Listen, others, well, they couldn't see what God was doing in your heart when you put your trust in Jesus. I mean, here is the most revolutionary moment of your life. Something so amazing that Jesus described it as being born again. I mean, going from spiritual death to spiritual life. And you know what God was doing inside of you, but no one else could see the work. And so what did God do? He gave us the memorial of baptism. You know, it's a physical witness, typically done with others around, done in community, so that you have the opportunity to tell the story again of what Jesus did in your life. And it, it just triggers this, this opportunity to to, to tell the story again. In fact, at Santa Maria Foursquare Church, when someone gets baptized, we actually give them a little bottle of water that, that is from the very tank in which they were baptized. And it's a, this living memorial, right? It's this memorial, a silent witness that just may sit there on your shelf or sit there on your counter. And when anybody sees it, it's like, what, what do you have this little bottle of water for? What's, what's going on with that? And it's this silent witness to remind us of what God did. And it gives the opportunity to retell the story over and over and over again. And I believe it's so important, and we see this right here in the text, that, that this is so important when it comes to the next generation. Because the next generation, they had not seen, you know, what God has done in your life. And, and in the story, uh, Joshua is saying, hey, the, the generations to come aren't going to know. They're not going to remember uh, this unless we build this memorial. In fact, in verses 21 through 24 of Joshua chapter 4, um, Joshua goes into even greater detail about this. And he says to the Israelites, in the future, your children will ask, what do these stones mean? Then you can tell them. This is where the Israelites crossed the Jordan on dry ground. 
For the Lord your God dried up the river right before your eyes, and he kept it dry until you were all across, just as he did at the Red Sea, when he dried it up until we had all crossed over. He did this so all the nations of the earth might know that the Lord's hand is powerful, and so you might fear the Lord your God forever. Some come to the Lord and took new ground, well, before your kids were even born. Or maybe they were too young to even, like, remember what you were like before you put your trust in Jesus. So, so what memorials have you built so that your kids will ask, what does this mean that you put your trust in Jesus? What does it mean that you are saved? What does it mean that you were born again? so that you can tell them that story. Maybe you have that little bottle of water, or I don't know, maybe maybe you put a sign above the door of your house that says, for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. Uh, maybe you took your favorite scripture and got it tattooed on your chest, because that is a memorial that um, well, a lot of people have, have done. Is uh, yeah, I, I have no ink on me, but if I did have ink on me, it would be Hebrews 10.23. I mean, hold fast, right? Hold unswervingly to this hope that we have within us because our God who promised, man, he's faithful. So now I don't know what you've done, but find ways to build memorials so that people will ask, what is this about? And it gives you the opportunity to retell the story. I think memorials are also really important because we are so forgetful. Now, all through the Old Testament, we see this over and over again with uh, God's people. Man, as soon as something great would happen that God would do, it seems like just the very next day they would forget all about it and go back to their misery and their idols or whatever. You know, we saw that right after God's people were, uh, they'd crossed the, the Red Sea. God did this miraculous thing, providing this way of escape from uh, the Egyptians who had enslaved them. And it was just days later that they were grumbling like, why can't we just go back to Egypt? Wouldn't it have been better to be a slave than to be out here in the desert? It's like, how? How could they so quickly forget God's love and his powerful care over them, this miraculous provision? Oh, you know what? I think we can understand that because it's exactly what happens in our lives. We do this all the time. It's like God shows up on Sunday, but then on Monday, we get a case of spiritual amnesia. Listen, memorials are the antidote to spiritual amnesia. They remind us that even when things are tough, even when things are challenging, God saw me through before. And he's going to do it again. He is the way maker. Hey, I want to share just a couple very personal memorials that I have in my life. It was all the way back in 1983 uh, 1983 that God got a hold of my life in a very profound way. I'd, I'd been serving him kind of growing up as a, as a kid, but it was in 1983. I was 19 years old when God just grabbed my heart 
um, just in such a profound way that things forever changed. And, and, and I was going to a church in Van Nuys, California at that time. My pastor, Pastor Daniel Brown, was my college pastor, and God used him dramatically through a couple of messages that he brought in July of 1983 that God used to shape my life forever. The cool thing was, is I was dating Kelly, who was a few years younger than me and was, and was kind of shipped back to the family farm in Iowa. So she was in Iowa when I was having this amazing God experience uh, in the San Fernando Valley. And so the reason part of this is so amazing is because I have a memorial that's in the form of some handwritten letters that I was writing to Kelly and she was writing back when all of this was going on in my heart. And so I just want to read you from a few of these letters that I was writing to Kelly in the summer of 1983 that is a memorial of what God was doing in my life. So I was talking in this first letter on the first Sunday, uh, July 17th. I was writing about Daniel's message that he had preached that morning that was just grabbing my spirit. And I said, Daniel's message was really good this morning. He shared about how he feels that the Lord won't be returning as soon as a lot of people have been saying. And how that we will be the church leaders of tomorrow. Wow. Wow, what a prophetic insight right there, huh? And that we need to make long-range, Christ-oriented goals that can change the world and can spark future great revivals. Wow. That was what was going on and gripping my spirit all those years ago. And so a week later... Um, I wrote the next letter that I'm going to share from you today, and it was the very next Sunday night. And in here, um, I say this. I say, since Daniel's message last Sunday, I've been feeling more and more that I'm supposed to be in full-time ministry. And the Lord really confirmed that this morning during college class. At least I'm totally open now to however the Lord wants to use me wherever and whenever. Now, my, my life was just gripped by the Lord. And then the following day, I write this, and it's I was going back to, to kind of retrace some of what uh, Pastor Daniel had been saying in his message. And, and, and I said, uh, quoting Daniel, that there needs to be a time of a radical plunge, being open to the Lord, if he wants to change our vocation, our location, or our whole lives, being available 24 hours of the day for the rest of our lives instead of when it's convenient. And then at the end of that letter, um, I, I write this. I write to Kelly. I say, do you think I'm getting too wild? I guess I've taken that radical plunge. Now, it was written in July of 1983, and it's this amazing memorial. But Kelly wrote back, and uh, the 16-year-old young lady wrote and said this. She said, the, although a lot of changes have been happening in our lives, you don't ever have to worry about me dumping you. 
Isn't that awesome? You never have to worry about me dumping you as long as I know the things you're doing or plans you're making are of the Lord. And she just goes on to say how she's behind me 100%. And even this morning, as I was rereading these letters, I mean, and when I got to Kelly's letter, I mean, I was crying uh, because it's just so profound. These are memorial letters that have captured the spirit of what God was doing as I was taking new ground in my spiritual life. And, and I'm going to treasure these letters forever. And, and guess what? I get to retell the story of what God was doing over and over again every time I think about these letters. The second memorial happened uh, it was just, I think, the following year. Because when God spoke to me about going into full-time ministry and I took that radical plunge to follow him wherever he would send me, I went off to Bible college. And during my first year of Bible college, they took us on a retreat up to Camp Cedarcrest, a place that is so special in my life. And, and during that uh, retreat that we had, the, the speaker gave us a challenge to if God has really grabbed a hold of your life and, and if this is a forever thing that you know that God has a call on your life, he said, I want you to go after I'm done speaking and find a place all alone somewhere on the campgrounds, and I want you to build a memorial altar there. I want you to just find a place and build a memorial. And so I took that very seriously. And, and so I went off into the hills and I found one that I, I hoped that would, you know, kind of like kind of be there forever. And I found this beautiful little sapling pine tree and I went and carried rocks kind of the biggest ones that I could find that I could carry, right? Kind of like from the, the dry riverbed of the Jordan and carried them up to the top of this hill and just embedded them into the ground right next to this little sapling. And, and here is a photo that I took several years ago uh, of, of this place, this memorial. And I'll, I want to tell you that there have been times in my story where I've kind of wondered, God, is this really what you had for me? Is, is this really what my life is to be about? When God has reminded me of that memorial, that place where I set those stones and got on my knees and prayed to the Lord and said, God, for my entire life, I give myself to you and I give myself to your work. And that has sustained me. And now, guess what? I'm getting to retell the story, even of that very private memorial in the form of letters, in the forms of those, that memorial, a uh, little altar that was built way up on a hill up in the San Bernardino Mountains. So I want you to think with me for a moment about what does God think about those who build memorials? And you remember Joshua had built that one memorial, like not even at God's instruction, just because he was so desperate to say, I never want to forget what God did right here. And so we get a clue of what God thinks about memorial builders in verse 14 of Joshua chapter 4. And it says, that day, the Lord made Joshua a great leader in the eyes of all the Israelites. And for the rest of his life, they revered him as much as they had revered Moses. 
See, Joshua was the one who had heard the Lord speak and then obeyed him, sending the 12 out to get the stones and build the first memorial. And he was also the one that then went down with them into the dry riverbed and built his own memorial so that, man, that he would never forget what God had done. And it was the same day that it says that God made him a great leader, one who was revered his entire life. Now, I don't know if Joshua's leadership and the building of memorials is like, if that was exactly linked. You know, I don't know if God made him a great leader because he built these memorials. But this is what I do know, that everyone who is a leader in God's kingdom finds ways to remind themselves and others about what God has done. So if you desire to be a spiritual leader, commit yourself to making memorials and retelling the story over and over and over again about what God has done in your story. And of course, Jesus gave us a memorial. He gave us communion. And so I'd ask that you would pause for a moment and get communion elements if you don't already have them right there with you, because we're going to look at God's word and we're going to receive communion together right now as a memorial, remembering what God has done for us when Jesus went to the cross. And in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verses 23 through 26, the Apostle Paul was reminding the church about what Jesus had done at the Last Supper. On the night when he was betrayed, the Lord Jesus took some bread and gave thanks to God for it. Then he broke it in pieces and said, This is my body which is given for you. Do this to remember me. So would you take this bread right now as a memorial of what God has done? And would you take it and would you eat it in obedience to our Lord? Then it goes on and he says, in the same way, he took the cup, the cup of wine after supper, saying, this cup is the new covenant between God and his people, an agreement confirmed with my blood. Do this to remember. Do this to remember me as often as you drink it. Would you drink with me? And Paul goes on and says, For every time you eat this bread and drink this cup, think about that. For every time you come back to this memorial, every time you pass this way and you take of the bread and of the cup, this is what you're doing. You are announcing the Lord's death until he comes again. Friends, Jesus went to the cross Oh, wow, so that we could enter into our promised land, so that we could be forgiven, so that we could move forward into full-on relationship with the God of the universe, the God who loves you, the God who has made provision for you. And man, we get to serve him together. And what an amazing thing that we're reminded of every time that we take communion together. Friends, can I pray for you at this time? God, we pray 
that we will be people who will never forget what you have done for us. Just like you opened up a path through the river so that your people could make it to their promised land. God, wow, you for us have also made a way. You are the way maker. Your work on the cross has forever made us a way for us to be able to access the promised land that you have for us. So God, we repent for how we've tried to create our own pathways, trying to find true life. Lord, when only true life can be found through you. So God, now we open our hearts to you today and receive your forgiveness. Lord, that you so generously offered to us on the cross. And God, we ask now that you would help us to be people who would tell and to retell that story of your salvation. Lord, not only to our children, but Lord, to all those that you would bring across our paths. In Jesus' name, amen. Church, you are loved, and we are going to see each other real soon.